This past week, I listened to a lesson that was presented by another preacher, and he discussed how people view the sermon that is delivered by the preacher. He said, quite often people look at us as chefs. We put together a little of this and a little of that, add a little seasoning to it, and then we provide the food for the people to eat. This speaker made what I thought was a very astute observation. He said, we as preachers are not chefs. We are waiters. God is the one who prepares the meal. And it is our role to deliver it without messing it up. And I thought that is really true. So if you will this morning, my desire is to present not something I have prepared, but something that God has prepared, and I'll do my very best not to mess it up. If you will, I want you to go to John 15, and I want to give a little bit of background as we continue in our study of the Gospel of John. If you go to the end of chapter 14, the very last phrase that you read there, he said, Arise and let us go from here. Here was the upper room where they had sat from John 13 through John 14. And they had celebrated the Passover meal. The Lord had provided them guidance and direction. And we looked at all those things found in chapters 13 and 14. However, when you get to chapter 18 in verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. That's going into the Garden of Gethsemane. So from the upper room, which was somewhere in Jerusalem, and to the Garden of Gethsemane, that little trek, if you will, it's not very far, that's what you have in chapter 15, 16, and 17. And there the Lord is going to provide what we would call some very powerful and profound teaching. In fact, in my mind, I can visualize our Lord walking along and then stopping and pausing and, and delivering a short message, a short idea, or maybe uttering a prayer. Much of the Lord's teaching was done using figures and parables, illustrations, if you will. And the Lord would take them and be able to provide a lesson that they needed to learn and understand. When we get to chapter 15, verses 1 through 8, we're going to look at three things that the Lord stresses here. The vine, the branches, and the vine dresser, that of the Lord. Let's enter into our study now and let's talk about the vine. Israel is a country filled with vines. In fact, there's two things that you can be assured you're going to see if you go to the Bible lands today and would have been the same in the days of Jesus. You would see olive trees and you would see vines and grapes growing upon those vines. In fact, if you go through the Old Testament, you will find that God frequently, through the various prophets and the various writers, would present Israel as a vine. In Psalms 80, verses 8 through 19, Asaph's psalm, provides for us a picture of what God did for Israel. And we pick up in verse 8, he says, You have brought a vine out of Egypt, 
You have cast out the nations and planted it. You prepared room for it and caused it to take deep root. And it filled the land and the hills were covered with its shadow and the mighty cedars with its boughs. She sent out her boughs to the sea and her branches to the river. Why have you broken down her hedges so that all who pass by pluck her fruit? The boar out of the woods uproots it, and the wild beast of the field devours it. Return, we beseech you, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see and visit this vine and the vineyard which your right hand has planted and the branch that you made strong for yourself. It is burned with fire. It is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we will not turn back from you. Revive us and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Cause your face to shine and we shall be saved. Do you hear what Asaph is pleading with God? God, you took us out of Egypt and you planted us in the promised land, going to the sea, the the Mediterranean Sea, going to the river, the river Euphrates. Oh, what a wonderful picture there. But the vine is broken down. Israel failed as a vineyard for God. If you go further to the book of Isaiah, to chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, and then tacking on Jeremiah 2.21, you will see it from a little different perspective. God calls upon Israel to make a judgment. Now let me sing to you of my well-beloved, a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. Now listen to what is done. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press for it. So he expected to bring forth grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now judge, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge please between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done to my vineyard that I have not done it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now please tell me what you will do, what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, and I'll break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. Oh, you begin to see the picture develop. Just like Asaph's psalm in Psalms 80, now the picture is the vineyard is failing and the reason is why, not because of what God has done, but because of the failure of a vineyard that brought forth wild grapes. Jeremiah would say in chapter 221, Yet I planted you a noble vine, a seed of highest quality. How then have you turned before me into a degenerate plant of an alien vine. Can you imagine picturing yourself planting your garden that you go to the 
seed store, you buy the best seed, you buy the best plant, you plant it expecting for it to bring forth something, and it brings forth an old weed. You see, looking at Israel under the Old Testament, Israel had failed. Oh, but there's going to be a much better vine. In Proverbs chapter 24, he uses an illustration by looking at vineyards and those that have been planted. And he says, I went by the field of a lazy man and by the vineyard of a man devoid of understanding. And there it was all overgrown with thorns. Its surface was covered with nettles. Its strong wall was broken down. And when I saw it, I considered it well. And I looked and received instruction, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. You see, the picture that Solomon gives is some vineyards fail because... The vine dresser doesn't do his job, but well, that's not the case with God. When you come to the New Testament, Jesus again uses the figure of vineyards in his parables because of time. I don't have the ability to explore each of these. In Matthew chapter 20, he talks about a man planting a vineyard, hiring workers to go for a Daenerys of the day and those who complain, but he used that as an illustration. Or you get to chapter 21, and he gives another one of about a man who digs a wine press. He builds a vineyard. He lends it out to others, and they fail. So you see, the picture of a vineyard was very familiar to them. But now, as we move to look at this one, Jesus appropriates this figure for the disciples. For us. And he's going to give some very basic principles. He says, I am the true vine. Oh, that's something important. When you say he's the true one, he's the original. He's the one that everything else is copied off of. Remember Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 2. He says he is a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected, not man. Jesus is the true vine. Every other illustration that arises, even those in the Old Testament, is not the real, the first. Jesus is the true vine. And when you start thinking about the application of that, he is the source of all blessings that go along with that. In fact, He is the source, period. If you'll notice John 15, look at verses 4 and 5. Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and in I in him bears much fruit. Without me you can do nothing. Jesus is trying to drive home the point that all of us are dependent upon the Lord for our sustenance. That's the reason why Paul would say in Philippians 4 verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You want to be able to do something, you have to draw your strength from the Lord. You cannot do it in and of yourself. But then you think about the conduit by which this sustenance arises. If you'll notice chapter 15 and verse 7, 
If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask whatever you desire and it shall be done for you. Notice, it's the words of Jesus. Jesus is not physically present with us here today, but his words are, and they have been recorded for us in chapter 15, verses 9 and 10. As the fathers love me, I have also loved you and Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Notice, you keep commandments, you do what He says, you're abiding in Him. Chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus said to those Jews who believed in Him, If you abide in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. But it's not just the vine. You have to look at what he says. I'm the true vine and you are the branches. That which connects all of us together is our attachment to the vine. If you'll let me me mix a metaphor here for just a moment. That which makes us brothers is the fact that we have a common parentage. That which makes people connected is has to be connected to a source, if you will. And in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, that which we have seen and heard we declare to you and that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. John said, we want you to have fellowship with us. But he says, the way we gain that fellowship is fellowship with the Father and with the Son. And he would say in verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. I can't tell you how many times over the years that I have had discussions with people and they would say that the word branches here refers to branches like churches. That you have the one Lord up here, you have Jesus Christ, and that All these branches are just branches that are churches. And they would say this denomination may be this and this denomination may be that branch and another, but they were all attached to the same vine. Oh, that's so misunderstood. The branches are individual Christians and the fruit that each of us produces. If I go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 13, He wants us all to speak the same thing, that we be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. And then he rebukes those who are saying, I of Paul, I of Cephas, I of Paulus, I of Christ. You see, Paul didn't believe division was from God. It's not. In fact, John 20, verses, or 17, verse 20. He would say, neither for these only do I pray, but for all of them who shall believe on me through the word, that they all may be one, Father, as you are in me and I in you. There are only two types of branches. Those that produce and those that do not produce. Those that do produce are pruned to bear more fruit. When you say, what do you mean by that? Well, look at verses 5 and 8. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. 
Verse 8, by this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so you will be my disciples. What God is looking for is, is fruit bearers, if you will, which involves an ongoing task of cutting off the bad from the good branches. You see, you may have a really good branch, but there may be some suckers on it. At least that's an Alabama term. Some things that are drawing nutrients but are producing nothing. Or you may have a a bad offshoot of a branch that needs to be trimmed. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. You see, he's writing this to Christians. Christians have to take off bad things. It's part of their lives. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and the spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Perfecting holiness. The Bible teaches us to be holy for God is holy. We sing the song, holy, 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 but then we will sing, take time to be holy. In 2 Timothy 2.21, Paul wrote, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified, useful for the master, Prepared for every good work. What is he saying? He's saying if I take care to allow myself to be pruned, then I can produce much fruit. Someone says, what kind of fruit is he expecting? And Galatians 5, 22 and 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Those that produce no fruit are destined to be burned. And the picture he gives us here in verse 6 is, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and withered, and they are gathered them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you're producing no fruit, you have no value, and you are not acceptable to God. The writer of the book of Hebrews in chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, pictured a Christian who has turned his back on the Lord. And he compares it to a field and he says, For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it was cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected, near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Let me ask you what you would do in your own garden. If you went out, you tilled the ground, you put out the fertilizer, you planted the seed, you worked the ground, and then it brought up thorns and briars and nettles. You would say, there's no fruit there. I'm not going to continue to work that ground. Some of us would say, let's just bush hog it down or 
mow it down. Oh, no, you need to burn it. You need to kill the seed that's in there. You don't want it coming back again. Matthew 7, verse 19, Jesus said, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I think there's a really good lesson that is found in Mark chapter 11. Well, Jesus was going to Jerusalem. He came upon a fig tree with leaves on it. Mark's record says, Now the next day when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing from afar the fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. Then Mark says, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, let no fruit be upon you, or let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. Someone says, well, that's confusing to me. If the Lord went expecting to find fruit on it, it was not the season for figs, then why would he curse the tree? And the answer is very simple. He expected to find little figs, baby figs. But he got there and there was nothing even in prospect. Oh, it's not the season for figs to eat them yet. It's not harvest season But if you go to the tree, you ought to find some sign that there's fruit growing. Oh, there's a lesson in that. You come and you look at the life of a a young person, of a person who's just become a Christian, and you don't see any fruit there. You might say, well, they're they're not worth anything. Oh, no, is there some sign that there's some fruit going to be there? Is there signs that this person is trying you see, the Lord looked and he said, there's no sign, no goodness. Cut it down. Number three, let's look very quickly at the vine dresser. You see, while Jesus was the vine and individual Christians are the branches, he said, my father is the vine dresser or my father is the husbandman. Let me point out to you, he's not just a laborer, but the owner of the vineyard. The owner. In fact, that's been used in several of the parables is the fact that the father is the owner. And you start saying, well, what would that mean? Do you remember back when Jesus said, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and they hear my voice and they follow me? He said, a stranger they won't follow. And then he talks about if a a wild animal comes and he says, they'll flee. Because they're a hireling and they don't care about the sheep. Let me make it clear. The father cares about the vine. The father cares about the branches. And the father cares about the fruit. He's involved in the vineyard. He's involved in the producing, uh, the pruning of it and the seeking the produce. He's involved all the way through. But God is patient, really patient. In James chapter 5, verse 7, Therefore be patient, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer, same original word here, waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently until it receives the early and the latter rain. 
I just used the illustration about Jesus cursing the fig tree. Was there any sign there? Well, is God patient with us? Absolutely. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, God is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God looks down and sees every one of us and is looking for and desiring us to be something that He wants us to be and produce fruit in our lives. The overriding message in all of this is, is that one must... Abide, that means to remain in Christ to accomplish anything. And what that means is there's no striking out on your own. There's no doing it your own way. That is saying, I am simply a branch attached to the vine doing what God wants me to do. And Jesus would say in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes into the Father except through me. Would you take your songbooks out now and let's prepare for the Lord's invitation. You need to see this as it is. This is God's invitation to you. Through His Word, He has taught men to believe that Jesus Christ is His Son and that belief in Him is necessary. Hebrews 11 and verse 6, John 8 verse 24. He has also called upon each of us to repent of our sins. That's a, a change in attitude that results in a change of conduct. Luke 13 verse 3 verse 5, Acts 17 verse 30, among many others. He's called upon us to confess His Son, to stand before men and say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Matthew 10, 32 and 33. And then God calls each of us to be baptized in His name for the remission of sins. In Acts 2 and verse 38. Have you done that? Have you been baptized for the remission of your sins? If you've not, and you believe and you're willing to repent and confess His name, when we sing the invitation song, come forward. We'll assist you in becoming a child of God this morning. Are you a child of God who needs God's forgiveness? Do you need the prayers of the congregation? If you do, come forward and we'll pray with you. Please come while together we stand and sing.